Hi, I am Patrick Palm, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to these interviews is that Favro clients are some of the most innovative and agile businesses out there. And it's used for collaborative planning by marketing teams, by product teams, HR, management teams. And what this means is that we get to know some truly inspiring people. So what we do in this podcast is that I invite them here for conversation about something where they are true leaders. So we can all learn from it. Let's go. All right, and we are live with uh, Joe at uh, Timber Games. How's it going? Good morning. Hello. I'm great. Thanks. Okay, so first things first, sometimes I get questions around how to pronounce my name, which I think is very weird because it's just Patrick, but sometimes they want to do something with that C. So in your case, is it Joe or Joey? It's Joe. Joe, yeah, okay, cool. And does it ever happen that people get that wrong? Only when I'm in Europe. <laughs> See, that's why I'm asking the question, because I'm here from Sweden. Yeah, I get that in Europe. And then, of course, if I go to the UK, they forget to put the E on the name, so I'm just J-O. We got plenty of people in um, Vietnam and Lithuania, and you might imagine that um, the pronunciation of their family names are sometimes a bit of a challenge internally. But we're trying our best, but it's not always going right. <laughs> For the ones who don't know you, why don't we talk a bit about your background, your backstory, basically. Now, how did you get into uh, into game development in the first place? Sure. Well, I've been doing it about 23 years. I originally started in the music industry. So I was in radio and then I was uh, working at a record company. And I did that for a while. And long story short, I went to a pub with some friends and our friends brought their next door neighbor who had nothing to do that day. And he turned out to be an executive producer <laughs> at a video game company. We hit it off. Um, he thought what I did was cool. I thought what he did was cool. Um, ended up interviewing for a marketing and brand position with his company. And and uh, halfway through the interview, they said, you should be a producer. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Not having any idea how to do that, but I did. Did that for a little while. Uh, a company called Radical Entertainment. Then went over to EA. EA Sports did 10 years at EA Sports. Worked on FIFA, World Cup, Champions League, and all the European stuff. I enjoyed that. Wanted to try something other than games. So I went to Microsoft. The game they hired me to make got canceled before I got there. So they put me on Connect Sports. So once again, in sports. Did that for a while. Did a small startup. Tried that. It wasn't quite what I was looking for. Went to Capcom. Three and a half, four years of Capcom as the, the general manager of the studio and the COO. And ended up going back to EA. They called me back and I ended up going down to California. Worked out of Maxis and was the VP of Maxis down at EA in California for four years. And then uh, decided to come back home to Canada and Vancouver and start a company with a bunch of people that I had wanted to start a company with a long time ago. So that's in a, in a nutshell. With Timber Games, I think you described it to me once as all dogs doing new tricks. I really like that. Uh, can you have uh, backstory? How did you come together with your fellow founders, get the first team started? Why did you start it? It's all very exciting. I've known Zoe for a long time. I've known Jeff for a long time. And we've both been at AAA Studios. And we both kind of wanted to get back to the craft of making games, get a little bit closer to the team. Because we've all worked at these mega corporations. But we also wanted to have fun doing it and try and do things a little bit differently. And certainly in Vancouver, you've got a couple of big load-bearing walls. You've got Microsoft, which has the coalition, which makes Gears of War, which is a massive operation. And you've got EA, which makes tons of games in Vancouver. And we wanted to be an alternative. You don't want to make a sports game. You don't want to make a shooter. Maybe you should give us a try. And so what we've been doing is trying to work with a bunch of people that are like-minded that we think can make some really great AAA products, uh, PC console, and be very clear on the kind of products that we want to make and how we want to operate as a company and really focus on things like diversity and inclusion. And people drop that buzzword all the time. But as of today, appears to be working for us. We're 48% female in our studio. And uh, we didn't set a target number. We just wanted to be mindful of it. And that's working. And a group of people that 
that really worked well and communicated well with each other. So each one of us has a specific role and we complement each other. And uh, bringing in people that are kind of scrappy and uh, and have worked in other places that want to try something a little bit different. So literally, like you said, a bunch of old dogs doing new tricks, but we also got a whole pile of puppies too. So you touched upon uh, fun and that's the um, theme today, you know, the secrets to um, building a company culture of fun. I would love to talk a lot about that because it really feels like one which is easy said, hard actually doing. How would you break that down? Take your time. Think about this as a mini GDC speech, because I guess there's several components to this. I don't want to cut you off too fast here. So how would you break it down and how do you approach that? When you think about video games as a thing, people play them to have fun and it's a form of entertainment. And as you make something that is intended to give people some joy and fun in their life, it only makes sense that the people making the game should probably have a fun process and a fun way of doing that. You know, we're not making accounting software. We're not making anything really heavy. And we try really not to be really stiff in what we're doing in making these games. Obviously, when COVID hit, we're all fully remote right now while we wait for our office to get ready when we all eventually move back into the office next year. We had to really go the extra mile in communicating and building a culture remotely with people. And there's a number of ways that we've done that. A lot of people that know about Timbers have know us because we have kind of like a visual style. Jeff Coates, who is the uh, creative director of the studio, he's also an incredibly talented illustrator. And he's the one that draws all the pictures of us. He draws all of us. And immediately we've got kind of a personality that people that don't even work for us kind of feel like they know us as a result of these drawings. And what Jeff draws is actually legitimately the kind of weird stuff that happens day to day at Timber. We really need to lean into that and embrace that. And we try to sneak our values in there. We try to sneak in things that are very, very important to us. So when people want to know what's it, what it's like to work at Timber, we'll just look at all of our social media stuff because that's kind of what it's like to work at Timber. We try to keep things light. Everyone has a voice. One of our values that we have is uh, clarity. And clarity is a weird value. It's a weird one to have. But the reason we chose the word clarity was we want everyone that works with us and everyone that plays our products and, and everything in between to be really understanding and clear what it is that we're doing and what is expected of them. And so they have questions they just ask. So no one is walking off into the forest going, I have no idea what the hell's going on, right? So we try to make sure we're really clear. And when we release our products, same thing. When you see the product, it'll be intuitive how to play it. I know what to do. I know where to go. And I know intuitively what I'm supposed to be doing in this product. And we found that if you make things really clear about what people are expected to do, that actually really lightens things up. And they're not people kind of rubbing their hands going, oh my God, am I doing the right thing? I don't know if I'm in the right place. We just focus on that. We have a lot of tools that we use. We use Slack. We use a lot of Slack. And I'll give you an example of the culture at Timber. It started out over a fight about cilantro. Cilantro is one of these polarizing things. Some people hate it. Some people love it. And I noticed on Slack that we had a, a foodie channel and someone was talking about cilantro, yay or nay. And I thought, oh, I'm going to weigh in on this one because I, I love cilantro. And I said, I, for one, I'm on team cilantro. And the Slack channel exploded. And we had, I actually looked it up. We had 326 comments about cilantro, which turned into kimchi. And then it just went to weird town really fast. And it's indicative of the culture that we have. We try to make it light. We try to have fun. We try to uh, keep topical. We try to over communicate with each other. And I think that makes for better game making. You know, if we can have fun talking about, well, cilantro or product management software or anything, the game will end up being fun too. So we try to keep it light. Focus on the personalities of the people at the studio and amplify that. Anyone can ask anybody anything in the company. I have a regular one-on-one -on -one with every member of the staff. And one of them said to me, this is super weird for me because the last company that I worked for, I worked there for like two to three years and I never once had a one-on-one -on -one with the head of the studio. And I think that's absurd. You don't have to have one every week or even every month, but you should have a connection with the people that are tasked with running the studio. 
And so by keeping it relatively flat and keeping it open and consequence-free, I think it makes for a better place. And oh, man, do we have fun. We usually are laughing ourselves sick most of the time. And yeah, we still make games. You mentioned that it's mostly remote, um, at least right now. Firstly, will you have a bit of a hybrid approach moving forward, even when the new office is ready? And secondly, if so, how do you see the difference building a culture when you know that everyone's going to be in the office versus building a culture where you are fully or partly remote? And I guess I would also say, you know, how do you make sure that everyone feels included in that? So the ones who are maybe a little bit more remote doesn't feel like a satellite. A couple of answers in there. When we do open the office, we're making it everybody's choice. Do you want to come to the office or not? What we find is everyone likes to throw the buzzword out there, hybrid, right? And hybrid means different things to different people. What I think is going to happen, we're going to have a number of people that are going to come to work and they're going to want to come to work every day. And there's a number of people that don't want to come to work into the office at all and the ones that are in between. What I suspect will happen is the people that don't want to really want to come into the office very often, they're going to come in and they're going to feel like they're missing out because people tend to love having human connection. And I'm hoping that the chemistry and the culture that we built remotely will kind of flood into the actual physical office. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes work to make people feel included and to make sure that everyone is understanding where we're going as a company when you're fully remote. We have people right across the country now working with us. Canada's pretty big. You know, I remember a friend of mine from Germany who went, came to the very first time to Canada. He goes, oh my God, I flew over Canada for like six hours. <laughs> and he said, if I did that at home, I'd fly over 60, 60 countries. And we have people in Vancouver. And then we have people just on the outskirts of Vancouver. We have people in, in Alberta, the next province over. We have people in Ontario. We have people in Montreal. We have people in Nova Scotia now. And so we really are kind of a, a nationwide company. Time zones get in the way a little bit at bit, so we have to be flexible there. But we, when we do big events, we bring everyone in. We're having a summer barbecue in a few weeks. Everyone is going to get flown in from uh, wherever they work at Timber to join us. Same thing with the Christmas party. We will fly everybody in for this. It's expensive, but the benefit you get from people making that physical connection with people is, you know, you can't put a price on that because people just love it. And then it's all the incentive, all the things that we do. We try to do a lot of social things. We have every other Friday or so, we're, we're always, there's always a game thing going on that we're all playing together or we're having some kind of social meetup. We're doing social meetup on Friday. One of the guys who is from Ontario is out for a wedding and we thought, okay, we're going to capitalize this. One of our guys is out, we're going to have a party and so we're going to do something on Friday. So we try to plan events and we try to find, uh, find ways that we can let people join us. Some people can't and uh, some people don't feel comfortable with COVID going out to a, like a big crowded place. So every single event that we do, we have an online option so they can join us. Whether it's literally, I brought my iPad to a dinner party one time so some of the people that wanted to join us could sit at the end of the table on the iPad and feel like they were with us. It looked stupid to the other people having dinner, but I don't care. It was great. And you have to go that extra mile to make people feel included. A slightly different question that I think is any kind of company leader has to think about is how to do with um, titles. Some companies, they are like, well, we don't really care about titles. You know, everyone's just a team member. Some come up with, let's say, more funny names or they can like reinvent a lot of titles. And then some have almost like a gamification. So it's, it has a very clear kind of structure. So it's almost like leveling up in a game. What's your approach to it? That's a super interesting question. I have a few thoughts on that. I like people to uh, have the title that accurately describes what it is they do. But I'm also mindful that there are some people that are working for Timber that may not be working for Timber a few years from now. They may want to go off and do other things. I want them to have an identifiable title and an identifiable role should they decide to move elsewhere. And same thing for people coming. 
producer is one of the most thrown around terms in the world, right? There are all kinds of producers. Depends if you work at Microsoft, you're this kind of a producer. You work at EA, you're that kind of a producer. We try to make sure we've got a little bit of consistency in what it is that we do. We try to keep the titles accurate, but how they actually frame themselves is their choice. There's a bunch of new terms that are coming out now, like game director. A lot of people don't know what game directors were. And game directors were like a natural evolution of a couple of roles coming together and kind of uh, achieving a, a need. We have principal artists and principal engineers. And before that, it's like, well, that, those are the only principal kind of thing would only come up if you were like, working a super heavy tech company. The leveling, we try to be consistent with our parent company, which is Sumo, based in the UK. There are a number of levels and everyone kind of categorizes into a, a level a level system. So you know exactly where you stand. And then there are like three different levels of each level. So let's say there's 10 levels and you know, are you one, two, three in each one of those levels? So you are learning, you are performing or you're exceeding. And it helps people plan their career. It's like, hey, well, I'm doing this. I'm at the midpoint of this level. What do I need to get to the next stage? And we have very clear ways that you can get there. And we communicate those things. We call it pathways. It's something that we've been doing with Sumo. And we're very excited because we're the new kids in Canada that is part of the Sumo network. And so they're, they're really very open-minded and, and reaching out to us. Hey, how would you like to kind of help us frame this journey together? And part of that has been talking about the levels and the titles. Everyone wants to know, how do I go from here to here? How can I get from here to here? And we try to make it as transparent as possible. So everybody knows and there's no ambiguity and no just how am I going to build my career? In fact, I would say probably one of the big motivators for joining Timber has been they've been working at a company and they don't have a path. They don't have a plan. They don't know what their career progression is and they don't know how to build it. So they've come to us and we do our very best effort to say, we will give you a path and then together we will plan that journey. And Man, have we found some amazing, amazing people that have joined us. I'll say taken advantage of for they were super skilled and not being paid very much and uh, been doing all this work. And we found them, we brought them in and we went, wow, <laughs> way better than we thought. And their path just takes off. And man, that's super rewarding to see. I think that's very interesting. And sometimes I come across places where they might be making a game where succession is extremely, or path, maybe I should say, is extremely clear and well thought through. But then when we talk about how that works internally, they're like, no, we don't care about titles. Which always strikes me as, it's one of those things that might sound cool to say, but it creates a lot of problems in practice. And I like what you say, because, you know, in the beginning of this talk, you know, you, you talked about the value of clarity. So if you're going to actually live up to that value, well, then you need to have clarity on these kind of things, too. Yeah. You know, we're a video game company and we hire people to do the work that we need to get done to make the video game. But we're also mindful that people have choices. We have to earn your respect and your commitment to be part of our journey. Because if you make video games in Vancouver, you got like a thousand companies you can work for. There's tons of work in this city. So we need to make sure that we are offering something that other studios aren't. We pay well. We're super competitive on pay. We have great benefits. We have a lot of things that we do that other companies don't do. But we also really need to understand and respect the fact that people are entrusting us with their time and their effort and their career. We need to honor that and we need to help them get on the journey where they're going. Sometimes that journey will be, maybe they're just passing through. Maybe they're just going to be a timber for a little while to get to where they really want to be or, or to help them understand where they want to go. And we will help you on that journey. We will celebrate the time that you've had with us. Sometimes people come on and they're like, man, I'm never leaving. We love that too. So it's important that we earn that trust. It's important that we earn that relationship that we have with all of our employees. I've been doing um, podcasts before when I've been asking a producer, you know, what would you recommend to someone who's thinking about doing that career path? But let's say we take this now one level up. 
let's say someone who's considering, I want to start a game company or, you know, I want to lead a game company. So we take it to the executive level. I have one friend that comes to mind that he did an MBA and then he was working for a very famous telecom company in Sweden. And then he became studio head of a good studio and he brought that to great success. And he's still in the game industry because he found that to be way more fun than any other industry he's been in. But obviously he kind of came in already from the beginning at a relatively high level. And my prediction is that we're going to see more of that in the future. People that are already very accomplished company leaders, and they realize that this is just a very, very interesting industry for financial reasons, where the market is going. I mean, there's a long list. If you would speak to, let's say, both the person who might be very junior, but are basically aspiring to do something similar to what you're doing in the future, but also to the person who maybe are coming, let's say, a little bit more from the outside and is already quite accomplished and are thinking about moving into this industry. What kind of career advice would you give? For the junior people that are coming in that are relatively green and looking to understand, I just say it's 90% who you know to find your way in. And you need to network, network, network and make yourself known. Hit people up on LinkedIn, but be honest with why you're asking to be LinkedIn. Don't be just some random person that sends a form letter or something that has nothing to do with what your business is and tries to link in with you. Be honest. Reach out and ask people, hey, I'll, uh, can I take you for a cup of coffee? I'd like to learn about stuff. I did that. And I made a commitment that all the people that said yes to me when I was thinking about doing this, that I reached out to my peers and friends that I had great advice, reach out and talk to people and ask them questions. Do your research on what it is about games. People think, oh, yeah, I have a video game company. We sit around and play games all day and eat, eat chips. There's a lot of hard work that goes into making games and a lot of stress that goes into making games. Making entertainment software is hard. It's hard physically to make sure you get the algorithms right and you're getting the right camera and the right presentation, the right modeling, the right rendering, the right frame rate, all that kind of stuff that comes into play. But understanding that your imagination is going to take you further than your education. A long time ago, I wrote an article that said your personality is more important than your resume, and I stand by that. There's a lot of people that have not had massive educations that have come on board and been amazing because they have the right brain, they have the right attitude, and they're ready to learn. So for the younger people, the people that are more junior, and I don't want to say younger people, I'll say the greener people, because I don't care if you're 45 years old, you want to do a career change, you've never done games, sure, let's talk, because we've all been there. But the people that you talk about, like the MBA people, the school smart people, and, and that have been perhaps in another industry that want to take the leap over... Just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Get comfortable with everything being unpredictable because games are very volatile. They kind of change at an instant's notice. And you'll talk to someone in charge of the product or a publisher and say, ta-da, we've done this. He goes, oh, that's really great. But I was really hoping we could change it over to that thing now. And I'm like, well, you never told us. I'm like, can I just get that? And I'm like, yeah, it's going to take time. Why does it take so long? And it's like all that crap we have to go through. I actually think it's really great when you bring people in from different industries. Um, we have an engineer that works with us that has never made a video game in his life. And he's a great engineer and he has come from the movie industry and he's an amazing software engineer and he brings with us the thinking uh, that is different for us and offers us insight into things that we hadn't considered and I'm a big fan of hybrid roles for people to come in that are really good at one thing but they want to learn about something else will become like a multi-class person be somebody that could do more than one thing but I love it when people join from other industries it doesn't always work and it usually I think doesn't work because they don't have the right mindset to be vulnerable and to be okay being wrong I look back at my career when I first started in video games and I thought I'd do everything when I got to EA. Boy, was that a steep learning curve because I, I came from a company where I was like the head of a product and then I joined EA because I really wanted to and I went, wow, I thought I was way better than I am. And I had to kind of take a step and do, okay, I, I really need to learn how to do this now and committed to doing it. And so someone coming in from a high-powered position that is going to join a different industry, it's going to be a learning curve. 
it's going to take time and you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay being wrong. You have to leave your ego at the door because man, nothing is worse than coming in and thinking you know everything and have a bunch of people that are like 25 years younger than you going, you're an idiot. <laughs> you need to be okay with that because you might be an idiot. It's just how you flex into that new role that matters. But really have an open mind and listen to people. And something that we do at Timber, which I think is awesome, we share our goals with each other, like really share our goals. Everyone said, oh, what's your yearly goals and what are you going to do? And then people think, oh, okay, and then at the end of the year, I'm going to get some review and they're going to tell me, was I doing well or not doing well? And then it's going to be a happy day or a bad day. We don't like that plan. We like to have regular check-ins, quarterly reviews with your manager that kind of talk about how are you doing? How are things going? But we took this kind of bold step of sharing our goals, warts and all, like everything. And right up to the executive level, myself and the other exec leaders at Timber, we shared all of our goals directly with every single person on the staff. So they know exactly what it is that we're trying to do right down to our personal goals. And that can be terrifying. I wrote down lots of stuff personally that I wanted to be held accountable for. I need to listen more and talk less. And I asked my team to hold me accountable to that. And I think by being vulnerable, by sharing my goals, my personal goals with the entire team, I think that buys a little bit of connection that they can have. That I'm not some stone pillar in the corner that is unassailable and you can't ask questions. I want to be completely open and honest because I'm not great at lots of stuff. I tell people all the time, I'm actually not very good at making games pretty good at putting good teams together that do make good games. And that's what I take my greatest joy in doing. I think many of the things you're saying would also be applicable to people that are already in a kind of studio or publisher executive role. You know, one thing which is interesting here is that um, I shouldn't say exactly which publisher, but I was explained once that at this particular publisher, when you reach a certain level, it's like this jet stream of like politics that hits you, you know? It's like, you know, as long as you're at the studio, it's like, it's fine. It's about the game. And then you reach that certain level of title and then like the jet stream hits you, you know? And I guess as an executive, you always have to make tough decisions from time to time. You're definitely one of the people I know that when your name comes up, I hear, yeah, you know, I know that person. And I think it also reflects a little bit in your social media. I saw this uh, Joe's 100 that you're doing. That's really cool. What was the background to you starting that? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so I did. I do a thing on LinkedIn that I started doing because it's called Joe's Impact 100. And I was talking with a friend of mine. I said, God, LinkedIn is really great and it can really suck at the same time. Sometimes people can just put so much garbage on there and you have to wade through so much crap on LinkedIn to get to anything that's interesting. And I thought, I really want to take my privilege of which I am well aware I have, like I'm a six foot five white guy in an industry full of us with a beard and that's kind of key. You have one too. And I thought I have been so fortunate. It's not really giving back, but I just want to kind of call out some of the people that helped get me to where I am. And I'm really appreciative of that. So I thought, I wonder if I can come up with 50 people that I know that have really helped me. I sat down and I just started listing out all the people that I that I thought that, that had done that. I was already at 75 and I thought, oh my God, I could totally do 100. So I wanted to do a, uh, a list of 100 people that I thought that really impacted my career and kind of thank them, but also give little insight and little stories on some of the, the, the interactions I've had with people because there's lots of hilarious interactions I've had with people. And I I wanted to kind of shout that out. And man, that's been huge. People have been sending me uh, messages. They said, oh my God, I was like, I'm having a really lousy day. And I read this article, this thing that you did, and it's been a bright spot for me. And I appreciate that. And I didn't do it for like patting myself on the back. I just really wanted to highlight some of the great people that I've worked with because I think some people need a spotlight or a shout out from other people in public sometimes. So that's why I did that. And it's been super fun. I'm up to 46 now. I've got another few to go before I hit my 100 and I'll do it by the end of the year. And so I have to balance, talk about my 100 because that's a personal 
personal thing for me. Talk about someone we just hired at Timber and show a comic of what they've done. Show something amazing that Jeff has drawn in terms of what our revision and values are. And I try to balance my relationship with that, with that platform. So that's kind of what that's about. It's really cool. I hope that if anyone listening right now that uh, steals that idea from you, that you're okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. Because personally, I would love to see more people do something like that. Because as you say, you know, a lot of the stuff that you see on social media, including LinkedIn, is, might be not that valuable, but these kind of things are interesting to read. And you also kind of hit many birds with one stone there, because every time I read one of your stories, I feel like I get to know you a little bit better without actually meeting you or talking with you. But I also feel like I'm starting to get someone else a little bit, you know? It's like this double thing, you know, which is very powerful. Yeah, people have a persona that they like to share. And sometimes there's a really great story behind that persona that people don't know. And that's what I've been trying to call out with some of the people that have helped me on my journey and some of the people that I've worked with that have really appreciated. And yes, there's some funny stuff in there too that I think is the stuff that people remember. And <laughs> it's putting more humanity behind these faceless people that, um, that are in the industry. And I think that's really important. I've had people that have reached out and said, hey, are you cool if I rip you off and do the same thing? I'm like, of course, you can do whatever you want. It's given them the courage to actually talk about that kind of stuff too. And one, you know, a couple of people in particular reached out and said, I'm going to do the same thing. Are you cool with that? And it's like, of course I'm cool with it because I didn't do it to get business or pat myself on the back. I did it because I just really wanted to get some shout outs out there to say, hey, all these people that helped me, thanks for helping me get there. And this, I think it's important to do. It's a really cool idea. I have a final question. I would like to pick your brain a bit on a let's say, more long-term visionary thing. And I would actually like to start in a quote by your fellow founder, Zoe. I also did an amazing podcast with Zoe some time ago, and she was doing a speech at GDC, and she had one slide, which obviously for me, who's in tools, you know, really liked. And she said, you know, you need to recognize the cultural impact of tools. I might have misquoted that slightly, but that was basically the gist. You need to recognize the cultural impact of your tool choices. And obviously, I like that a lot because it resonates with a lot of the ideas why we created Favor in the first place. But here's the question for you. Since we are now in a world where much more of the office is really online rather than, let's say, the physical space, it's just, it kind of moved there a bit. Do you think that we will see much more, let's say, distinctive designs that are, let's say, culturally connected? What I'm after a little bit here is that obviously we can talk about tools like Favor that, you know, maybe in the future it would not only be, let's say, Favor versus, let's say, more centralized tool. Maybe it will be a lot of different flavors. But I think we can maybe think about this much wider. Let's say we talk about social media. We tend to mostly talk about age categories. And okay, well, Facebook is now starting to become, for us, who's a little bit older versus TikTok would definitely be a little bit younger demographic, etc. So that's like an age dimension. Do you think that we will get also with business tools, like more distinct, let's say, cultural tools? It's like you're going to pick the tool because you're going to say, well, we are really trying to have this kind of culture. And then we're going to pick that instead of talking about features all the time. So I'll give you a quote for Favro you can put in your back pocket. Because I've described Favro as the tofu of planning apps. You have to explain that. <laughs> and I call it the tofu of planning apps because when you throw tofu in something you're cooking, it absorbs the flavor. It absorbs what it is thrown into. We looked at lots of different software. And when we looked at Favro, we thought, you know, if we can make Favro feel like it's ours. We can make it feel like our own. And that's why we use it. And I am a hard nut to crack when it comes to using this stuff. As Zoe will tell you, you know, when we were uh, launching it to the team, she goes, even Joe's using it. <laughs> so I think if you give people the customization option to make it really feel like it's their, it's their application, right? 
I use it all the time. And the way that I uh, need to remember things and highlight things, I always have to put a picture on all my cards. And those pictures that you see when you open up Favro and you go, okay, there's the princess bride guy who says inconceivable. And I use that guy because I wanted to draw attention to this particular thing we're trying to figure out. And so all of these different things that we've done have allowed us to make it feel like our own. And that's why we use it. I think a lot of the software that people use, it has to feel like you made this for my company. You know, we're looking at performance management software, deciding which one to use. And we've had conversations with probably half a dozen companies that all make kind of the same thing. But what sets one or two of them apart is, do you integrate with the things that I use? We use Slack all the time. We don't use email very much anymore. We use Slack for most things. Does it integrate with Slack? Can I customize it? Can I go in there and put my own fields in there and I can customize what I want to be measured on, what I want to roll out to the team? And I think that's what's going to happen in the future. I think that companies are still going to have their offering, but I think they have to offer kind of a framework that they say, here's what we make. Here's how you can customize it. It's almost like ordering a car. You can order a Volkswagen or an Audi. They're basically the same thing at the very core, but then the engineering stuff that kicks off and the Audi is getting higher end components and it's meant more for performance and you can add more stuff, but they all come right down to that engine on a, on a frame. I believe that the software and the services that we're going to see coming from the marketplace are going to do that. They're going to be flexible and listen to the consumer. You have been very good at listening to our feedback. We think of you as our friend and partner at Favro, not just somebody we write a check to every month. And for example, one of our guys in our QA department said, oh, I really wish Favro could do this kind of stuff. And he gave you the feedback. And some of the stuff is already in now working and we're using it. It's that relationship from a vendor. So if you can make software that does X for me and it makes my life easier, I love it. But if you could take it that next level and you could make it that I can make it feel like my own, I can customize it so it's bespoke for me. That's what I think the future is. I think that makes a lot of sense. And also besides some of the things you mentioned, I think there's a couple of things coming up that we're working on that will um, make you very happy. The big struggle we have is Swedish um, summer vacation thing. This country dies for the summer. Fortunately, we have developers in many other parts of Europe and the world. So we as a company doesn't shut down. No one worry. We are a Swedish company and some of our core design comes from people that are here. And uh, we have this like interesting summer period. As a comment then you know, to what you said, I think, as you know, I built another tools company before. And one of the things I learned is that customers will always have a lot of suggestions for how to improve. But the most important thing is to always use those suggestions as an opportunity to ask about the problem they want to solve. Because if you can deeply understand the underlying problem, you can typically come up with a design that will make the tool better for everyone and not just bloat it with one more button that ultimately will make the tool totally bloated and no one wants to use it in Jira. You need to have that mindset because if you're going to build a tool which actually becomes easier and easier to use as it becomes more capable, I think actually car metaphor is pretty good here. I mean, you used a car metaphor. I think we can use a car metaphor here that, I mean, driving a high-performance sports car today is actually much easier than driving a high-performance sports car 20 years ago. If you would drive the fastest Ferrari in the 80s, you would you know, probably drive it off the road versus today, you know. I had a 20-year-old sports car and it was, or no, was it 20 years? No, it was a, no, it wasn't that long. It was about 15 years older than most. Manual transmission with a clutch that was so hard. It was just like, oh my God, the clutch was so 
so hard to use. And it was super fun to drive. And all of a sudden, now advancements in transmissions, it's not just like a crappy automatic transmission that comes through. It's like a PDK system or a double clutch system. Those things are awesome. And there's a whole generation of people that are going to grow up not knowing the sound of grinding gears as you're trying to get it in there or, or, or burning out your clutch because you're, you're too hard on it. And it's because the advancements of technology and that manual clutch that I used to drive that was a brute to shift as you move forward, I can get the same performance and it's way easier now from like a PDK or a uh, double clutch system. Still super enjoyable to drive. It's evolved. And it's just what you're saying. Like you have to evolve um, what the needs are of the people and listen to them. And as you said as well, Patrick, it's tell me what problem you're trying to solve. Don't tell me what you think you need us to do. You know, I learned a long time ago from an engineer. He taught me a lot. We wanted a 3D front end from our game, a 3D menu system because everyone was doing it. And I had this huge argument with an engineer saying, I run a 3D front end. And he was saying, we couldn't do it. Can't be done. Can't be done. And I'm like, but those guys are doing it. It can be done. He goes, yeah, we can't do it. It can't be done. And then I realized the way that I was asking the question was not the right way to ask a question. My technical director came to me and said, you know, I can make that look exactly 3D and it'll feel 3D. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, but it won't be 3D. I'm like, well, that's what I want. What's the difference? He said, if you tell a certain kind of an engineer you want a three-dimensional front end, they'll start building you a three-dimensional world as a menu system. And that's not what you want. So he said, that's why they can't do that because they don't have enough memory. I'm like, come to them with a problem. Can you make it do this? Yeah, we'll make it do this. Don't tell someone how to make it. Tell them the problem you're trying to solve. And that's exactly what you just said. That's awesome. And, um, you know, I think we could continue to talk for um, a very, very long time. And then it would turn into like a Joe Rogan three hour you know, podcast. Then everyone would be dozing off. No, it would be awesome. It would be awesome. But I think my team are going to ping me soon saying like, this is, we're getting into the sequel now. So I hope there will be a chance for a sequel in the not too distant future, if that's okay with you. I'd love that. That'd be great. Some of my favorite podcasters, they tend to have some reoccurring guests. And that's nice because they typically they start a little bit about what we talked about last time and then move into some latest and greatest. So with that said, super thank to you and thanks to all of you for listening. And um, as always, if you thought this was good, please say share. You know what to do. And I'll see you in the next one. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. If you want to elevate yourself as a modern leader and help your teams become even more successful, then check out Favor Academy at favor.com. They will find podcasts, webinars, articles, all free of charge. Check it out.